Broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in the western foothills, you're listening to Open Ears, Maine. We want to hear your pandemic stories. To call in, dial area code 515-602-9747. That's 515-602-9747. The phone lines are now open. Joe brought it home from the office. He gave it to Betty and one of his kids and to Betty's mother. But Betty's mother went back to California the next day. On her way to the airport, she gave it to a cab driver, a ticket agent, and one of the charming stewardesses. At school, Joe's kid gave it to some other kids. And Mrs. Merrill got it and gave it to her husband. In California, Betty's mother gave it to her best friend, Dottie. But Dottie had a heart condition and she died. But before she died, Dottie gave it to her girlfriend, the mailman, the paper boy, and the vet when she went to pick up her chihuahua. If a swine flu epidemic comes, this is how it could spread. You'll want to be protected, especially if you're elderly or chronically ill. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot. Rosita? Mm-hmm. Did you know there's a right way to sneeze? <laughs> Let's show them Elmo. Yeah. When you feel like a mouse, please take care of that shoe. This is how you act. This is what you do. Lift your Elmo pie, bend it toward your face. Sneeze like this. And a dirty place. A chew. A chew. You I can do it. A chew. A chew. That's the right way to sneeze. Thank you. To learn more about preventing flu, visit flu.gov. Welcome to episode four of Open Ears, Maine. It is Thursday, April 23rd, 2020, and I'm your host, Crash Berry, editor-at-large for Mainer, the magazine and website at MainerNews.com. By the way, if you happen to enjoy true crime podcasts, be sure to check out Devils and Dirtbags. That's my 13-part investigation of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield, Mass. Episodes are available at devilsanddirtbags.com or wherever you download. On today's edition of Open Ears, Maine, we'll be speaking to attorney Jason Dion, who specializes in family law, about how COVID-19 is impacting Maine's court system and stressing out parents who have child custody issues. But first, the numbers. According to the state of Maine, there have been 937 confirmed cases of coronavirus. 485 Mainers have recovered. There have been 150 hospitalizations and 44 deaths. There's also been about 17,000 Mainers tested for COVID-19, Uh, that have come back negative. That's good news. Currently, over 100,000 Mainers have filed for unemployment benefits in the last five weeks, and over 11,000 new filings in the last week, 
26 million Americans are unemployed due to the COVID-19 epidemic. Joining us later in the program will be Andy O'Brien from the Maine AFL-CIO and a fellow Mainer contributor to discuss a new unemployment helpline set up for Mainers. Meanwhile, it's been a week since an explosion rocked the Androscoggin paper mill in Jay, destroying the mill's pulp digesters and shutting down the paper mill, adding about 500 more Mainers to the unemployment rolls. Still no word from investigators on what caused the blast, which amazingly did not cause any injuries, but the mill has been closed for a week and the future is unknown because the explosion destroyed the mill's two digesters, which are sort of like these huge pressure cookers, which are key to the pulp-making operation, and pulp, obviously, is key to papermaking. In good news, though, some rare good news, today the mill's owners restarted the number four and the number five paper machines. Apparently, they're trucking pulp in from the owner of Pixel's Mills in Ohio and Pennsylvania, where they happen to have pulp mills. Still no word on how many workers are back on the job, but the machines are supposed to be running 24-7, so you'd think that would mean most everyone's going to be back to work in Jay very soon. The question remains, though, where will the mill get pulp in the long term? Apparently, other main-based paper mills are either going to supply pulp or maybe they're negotiating to supply pulp. Apparently, some pulp has already been delivered from the Somerset Mill that's owned by Sappy Paper. And there's talk of the ND Paper's Rumford Mill of possibly selling pulp to the mill in J. Uh, by the way, those, those mills, Sappy, uh, that stands for South African Pulp and Paper Industries. And ND Paper in Rumford is a newly formed subsidiary of Nine Dragons Paper a huge manufacturer based in China, which shows the global involvement in our local industry. And of course, they're here because, unlike much of the planet, Maine is still a heavily wooded place, which is why many of us love living here, myself included. I love the trees, I love the forest, and I also love firewood. I've been cutting and splitting my own firewood for heat for over a decade now. It's a great workout, a local fuel source, not paying the oil companies. I really like the exercise. I like working outside, you know, away from the computer and the Internet and telephones. Thing is, usually I'm scrambling in the fall to finish up the cutting and splitting and stacking before the snow flies. Um often doing it while it's snowing, which is kind of embarrassing. But not this year, though, because I'm already halfway done with next year's wood, which is amazing for me. And I know I'm not alone because I made a visit over to uh, Frechette's in Buckfield on the streak of Mountain Road and picked up a new chain for the saw. And uh, Greg, the owner, and I were talking, and he says everybody is ahead on their firewood operations, too, because they've got nothing else to do. 
And I got the same report from Kelly, uh, the owner of Giles Country Hardware over in Livermore, which is my local hardware store, and where I usually buy my bar and chain oil. Uh, bar and chain oils with lubricates the chainsaw chain. If you don't happen to have a chainsaw, you wouldn't know that. And Kelly says she can barely keep chain oil on the shelf because everybody's cutting wood, which makes me feel good uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, for me, it's better to be working out on the wood lot rather than sitting at home eating bonbons and binge-watching Netflix. Uh, and, you know, from the sounds of the chainsaws roaring all around my neighborhood, it seems like many of my neighbors are thinking of the same thing. But more importantly, getting your firewood done is actually a positive step you can make. It's, a, it's about planning for the future, planning for that long winter ahead of us, which is actually kind of, for me at least, grounding in these um, uncertain times, I feel like I'm getting things done. So if you're stuck at home uh, as a so-called unessential, I hope you're getting your firewood done or whatever chore you usually put off. It just feels nice to be thinking about the future in a relatively normal way. Coming up, Jason Dion, attorney at law. I don't need another flu shot. I had a flu shot last year. A swine flu epidemic may be coming. Swine flu shot? Well, I don't know. I've been thinking about it. It could make you very sick. Swine flu? Man, I'm too fast for that to catch me. You'll want to be protected. I'm the healthiest 55-year-old you've ever seen. Hey, I play golf every weekend. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. Joining us now via the internet is attorney Jason Dion. Jason is a partner with the Lewiston Law Firm of Isaacson and Raymond, where he's practiced law for over a dozen years. And Jason was born and raised in Aroostook County. He's a graduate of UMaine and UMaine Law School. Lives in Southern Maine with his wife and kids. And he specializes in all sorts of law, divorce, real estate, personal injury, civil litigation. And he's a very good trial lawyer. And I know that because he represented me in a case involving a nut job stalker of mine. And he did a great job. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Crash. Appreciate it. I don't recall courts ever shutting down before. I imagine this is a first. Could you tell us what the direct impact of COVID-19 has had on Maine's legal system? Technically, the courts aren't closed. Uh, they're just selective on what they uh, can handle based on the constitutional implications. So certain criminal matters, uh, protections from abuse cases and child protective cases are, are still being addressed in some limited format. And to, to a very limited extent, the court is available for a certain family or civil matters if it's an absolute emergency, but uh, thus far I haven't heard of any cases that have been able to test that threshold. What criminal cases or what criminal charges would we be seeing in courts right now? Trials or more arraignments? Right now all the trials are held off because of, of the jury implications, but uh, 
arraignments, bail hearings, um, things like that. I, I don't do a lot of the criminal, uh, but I've just been following the the updates and speaking to some of my colleagues as the um, as the information's coming out. But um, they're, they're trying to at least uh, accommodate the modicum of constitutional rights. Or have you heard from your colleagues about uh, an increase or decrease in criminal behavior or at least arrests uh, during the state of emergency? It's sort of the opposite is that unless somebody is really deemed to be a violent risk, I think the instructions are not to arrest. Uh, they're trying to keep people out of the jail. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of uh, bail hearings, a lot of cases that uh, might not have been addressed as quickly as they would have, but uh, there's a lot of plea bargaining going on. There's a lot of people getting out of jail. There's a lot of lax um, uh, bail conditions. Uh, they're, they're sort of doing the, from my perspective, the analysis that they should have done previously, which is if you're not violent and you're not a risk to somebody, uh, there's, there's not a lot of reason to be holding you in jail. So is this a good time to be a criminal? Uh, if, if you're committing misdemeanors and nonviolent crimes, probably. Not that there's ever a good time to be a criminal. So you're focused uh, more on uh, family law and other litigation like that. And I imagine that even without a pandemic, family law, child custody disputes are are probably pretty stressful. How often did those sort of co-parenting disputes and stresses arise before COVID-19? Yeah, so family law is a, is a good portion of my practice. I do a lot of civil litigation. Um, but with family law, obviously, there's a lot of emotion involved. Some parents are better at co-parenting than others. Uh, I would say that over the last couple of years, there's been a, a pretty significant improvement in, in co-parenting. I think most people are entering divorce, either having been a child of divorce themselves, uh, or, or it's, it's such a norm that a lot of them are entering into it sort of as a... Uh, as a business transaction, but with their, with their kids in mind and are really trying to avoid the conflict. Uh, but certainly there's still a lot of co-parenting issues in general. Uh, there's still a lot of people who struggle with being able to uh, see the, the perspective of the other parent. Uh, and there's still a lot of people who can't differentiate their own view from the view uh, that their child is having uh, in, in a family matter case. Very complicated then, because we have all these different perspectives we have to deal with in Perhaps it's not easy for some people to take or to think of the perspective of you know the person they're divorcing. Have you actually gotten calls from clients recently about problems with custody issues because of the pandemic? Absolutely. I think one of the biggest issues we have is that the resources that are typically available to us, the, the co-parenting counseling, uh, the Kids First program, which is an exceptional program that runs uh, throughout all of Southern Maine, um, they're just not as readily available and the classes aren't happening uh, the way that they were happening previously. So we can't kind of give the basic tools or provide the basic tools uh, that kids first often would. And, uh, you know, people are really in panic mode. People have a lot of idle time. They're sitting at home uh, with their kids when they would otherwise be at work. And they're just stewing over all of the horrible hypotheticals um, with COVID-19 and, and, uh, sort of thinking the worst case scenario about their their um, uh, former partner or former spouse. What's the first kind of advice you give one of your clients trying to cope with this problem right now? First is don't panic. There's always dangers in the world. Your child is always at risk of something. Uh, you know, there's 
COVID-19 is sort of the the uh, uh, risk du jour, but, you know, kids get into all sorts of things all the time. There's all sorts of risks in life, and you you, you take those um, those chances. Every time your child goes with the other parent, you can't control what happens there, but your child always has some risk, whether it's, it's you know, being around traffic or, you know, being around people that are less than ideal or, um, you know, going to school or daycares where you, know, you don't know what's happening all day. So the world is a dangerous place. COVID-19 is just one other danger. You got to give some faith to uh, the person that you had a child with to, to do what they need to do to protect the child. And it may not be the exact same way as you, um, but you know, you can't assume that they're just, you know, covering your child in COVID-19 blankets that are, uh, infected and trying to, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, make the child sick. Nobody wants their child to be sick. When we talk about, you know, the specific nature of COVID-19, uh, you just brought something up, the school closings, uh, people being home with their kids more that they weren't almost kind of, uh, not traditional homeschooling, but a sort of a different sort of homeschooling. And I imagine that can cause some problems. Uh, if one parent doesn't necessarily agree with the, way the child is being taught or not taught, uh, how does that impact pre-existing custody agreements? Well, if, if parents are not communicating, it's, imagine that your child takes uh, a math class with one teacher half of the week, another teacher the second half of the week, and neither one has any idea what the other, par- what the other teacher is doing. If the education system ran that way, your child would have a subpar education. So yep. in in these mixed custody, there needs to be some communication about, you know, what, how the homeschool is working in one home versus the other. And there needs to be some understanding that not all parents have the ability to, to teach certain subject areas. Uh, let's say there is some disagreement over whether people are talking about the education or who the child is hanging out with. Are there any legal actions that can be taken right now? I mean, if, the, if there's a risk of abuse, the courts are open for uh, protection from abuse matters. I mean, if, certainly if somebody feels that their child is physically in danger, and I don't, I don't mean subjectively, I mean objectively, you know, that there's some reason to think that the child is in danger, not, you know, mom's boyfriend had an OUI three years ago, and he's a, you know, I've seen him, and he's a pretty scuzzy dude. Uh, you know, if there's some objective stuff, you know, your child's coming home with, with marks or bruises, or, you know, you get those concerns. You, you should you should take the same actions you would take pre-COVID-19. Uh, but, you know, if it's just kind of a, I don't like what's happening over there, but it, it, it's not abusive, there's not a lot that can be done. Uh, we're trying in the family law bar to do private mediations, which um, has a price tag that comes with it, but everybody's trying to, to work with the, the individual budgets to make it um, doable. But, you know, I have a private mediation this afternoon uh, in a case that, that the court wouldn't be able to give attention to until at least after May 1st. And, and that's at best. So, um, you know, we're, we're trying to, to uh, have a, an avenue where parents can go. But at the end of the day, in order for those avenues to be productive, uh, there's going to have to be compromise. There's going to have to be communication. There's going to have to be some give and take. So that would be dealing with two parents in private mediation uh, to resolve a, a, a issue that's pending right now. But what if one of those parents 
is a lunatic uh, and, you know, doesn't want to mediate and perhaps doesn't even, let's say, return the kid on the day the kid's supposed to be returned. What happens then? You, you can file your motion for contempt or you can file a motion with the court seeking an emergency hearing. But my guess is right now, withholding contact uh, is going to result in a contempt. It's going to result in penalty and consequences. Uh, but unless it's a severe situation, uh, I'm guessing that it's it's not going to be resolved anytime uh, before May. When the pandemic's over, the parents would go back into court or would you envision that the person's actions during the pandemic would impact a judge's orders? If you've got an order in place now, you've got to follow it. I mean, the order controls. It is what it is. Um, you know, unless you have an agreement, you've got to follow that order. And if you don't follow that order, there, there's going to be consequences. And I'm guessing how a judge treats it is going to be on a case-by-case basis. You know, if a parent withheld contact because someone in the other parent's household actually was ill or was sick. I'm guessing that'll be treated differently than the parent on the other side works at a, is an ambulance driver and uh, works with sick people on a regular basis, but has no symptoms. You know, it's really going to be a case by case basis, but people behaving badly, there's, I guess, different degrees of bad. Would we ever see the police get involved in a non-compliance of a parenting order? Almost never. Because, you know, parents have constitutional rights to decide how their child is raised. The parental rights order or judgments in the cases kind of divvy up some of those responsibilities. But uh, because it's a civil matter, law enforcement usually won't get involved uh, because of the constitutional implications. They don't want to get uh, sued themselves for violating somebody's constitutional rights. Um, But, you know, obviously, if there's again, if there's a risk of abuse or, you know, there's you got to get a kid that's clearly living in a known crack house. You know, the police may say, look, uh, you know, maybe it'd be better if the, the child goes to stay with mom or dad for a while. Are there caseworkers working right now doing house visits and, and home visits to to check on complaints like that? I don't know whether or not they are. Uh, I, I have to assume that there's somebody out there that's looking over these things, but I wouldn't feel all that safe in, in trusting that system right now. Are you doing a lot of conferencing, video conferencing with clients now, or are you mostly on the phone? Uh, it's a mixture. Uh, not everybody is as tech savvy, sort of as the, the longer this thing goes on, the more that people are uh, getting Zoom or getting some other video conferencing. To me, it certainly adds a, a feature that telephone doesn't give you. You really need to be able to read somebody's body language or be able to have that, that face-to-face interaction a lot of the time. I was wondering about caseworkers, too, using Zoom as a way to kind of check in on clients, even though Zoom, you know, you know, the image, you can control your image. on. Well, you might not see the crack pipe in the corner. Do you <laughs> feel parents are kind of adapting to this uh, new normal? Are they are they video chatting with their kids I, I, if they're missing their child? Is there that kind of access? Yeah, I, I think I'm seeing a lot more of that. Um, I mean, the video chatting was there before, obviously, but um, where, where the kids are more savvy, you know, it's not unusual for the kid to, you know, pick up their tablet and, and dial mom or dad and just to say, hey, or good night or, you know, show them the drawing that they made. Have you heard of any uh, dramatic not let a kid go back home situations? Uh, especially at the outset, when the stay home order issued, I feel like I was getting calls and emails left and right of people saying, well, 
uh, you know, they, they call for the advice and whether or not they take it is up to them. Uh, I think majority of my clients have been pretty good about it, but I'm hearing a lot from colleagues about bad behavior. A lot of people withholding kids, a lot of people saying, you know, that my kid, the, the kid is not going back until uh, this whole ordeal is over. It's really horrifying to, for, for a parent not to be able to see a child. I, I completely understand the concerns, but, you know, set, set some parameters, set some rules. If, if everybody follows those rules, there's zero reason why any child should be withheld. Uh, especially with social distancing rules that could come into question, though, let's say someone in the first household is sick or is an essential worker. Has that come up specifically saying, hey, listen, I've got, you know, my ex-husband's wife is a essential nurse and I don't want my kid going there. I'm going to withhold them. Uh, has that happened? Yeah, absolutely. And what I tell people is, you know, maybe there's a higher probability. I don't know. But I mean, if you're walking through a supermarket right now or you went to Walmart even wearing a mask, I think, you you know, you're probably putting your child just as much at risk as if, you know, you're, you're sending them into a household with a mom or dad that happens to be an essential worker right now. So, I mean, it's, that's there. I think that's very different than somebody being sick in the house. I mean, exposure is everywhere right now. We often hear that phrase about, you know, doing what's best for the children in a custody battle. Is that actually true? Or is it more kind of egos, parents' egos fighting back and forth? Problem is, is, is a lot of people treat that as a subjective uh, standard. You know, best interest is not what's best for the parent. It's not, you know, it's, it's about what's best for a child. And is it is it best for a child to have, you know, if one parent has an opportunity to send a kid to a private school, 30, 40 grand a year, uh, but it means that they'll only be able to see the other parent three times in a month. You know, is it is it in the best interest of the child to have a great education? Sure. But is it in the best interest of the child to have regular contact with the parent? Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of balancing and competing factors. I can tell you that a lot of parents have a difficulty seeing past themselves. Uh, mm. I, I really do find the Kids First program is, is exceptional at helping people to, uh, you know, I don't know if I can, can I swear on this thing? Yes, you can. Okay, so to cut the shit. You know, because a lot of people, their egos get in their way and they can't see past themselves. And when I have somebody who's struggling with that, I say, look, imagine that Wednesday I came to your house. I made you get into a car. I made you drive an hour and a half south. I made you go into a home, sleep in a bed, socialize with certain people, have only certain access to certain clothing, certain toys, certain foods. Uh, did that for two days. And then right when you were getting comfortable, I went, I picked you up, I threw you back in the car, I sent you back into that other world. Now, while you're sitting cozy at home thinking about what your child is doing in the other home, your child is literally living in two worlds, completely different worlds. And if you can't put yourself in that perspective, you're never going to be able to understand what is truly in your child's best interest. Wow. Uh, you know, I just feel even more grateful that my parents stayed together <laughs> and that I was not having to deal with that kind of stress. I mean, I, we're talking about the parents right now, but I'm thinking about the stress of the kid, kids worrying about COVID because they're hearing the news and not being with their mom or dad. You know, it's just very, very, it, because I don't have kids, I'm not around kids. I can't imagine what kind of trauma they're going through, but I imagine it's pretty freaking great or bad and could have a lasting impact on their relationships with their parents too, watching how they deal with this. Yeah, there's a, I had an expert testify in a case a few years ago about um, 
um, the, the connections that children form, uh, you know, either healthy connections or, or unhealthy connections early on, you know, and about the, the importance of um, consistent contact and uh, how those, um, how the way that you co-parent, especially in the early years and the amount of contact that your kids have with parents uh, or that children have with their parents, uh, how that manifests in, in later years into, uh, you know, people who have unhealthy uh, attachments, uh, who have um, uh, parents who struggled uh, openly in front of their child. You know, you got a higher incidence of uh, suicidal ideation, depression, drug use, acting out, poor performance in schools, uh, difficulty forming healthy relationships and friendships. Um, you know, there, there, there is that lasting impact. And, you know, as, you know, as a parent myself, you know, you, you always, you always have fear that you're going to, you know, create some type of angst in your child or, or, uh, or resentment or, or something. Um, and, you know, it's, I think for parents who have, um, joint, some type of shared custody, you know, a lot of them, because of the, perhaps some of their own guilt, often blame it on the other parents. You know, my, my child is performing poorly in school because of what he did or she did, or she doesn't do this, or she, he doesn't spend enough time. Or, you know, it's, uh, um, and a lot of it is just poor communication. I mean, they, they, they know what's going on in the other household from uh, small comments that their child makes or from social media content or, you know, from the, the scuttlebutt from mutual friends or, uh, you know, they really don't know what's happening in the other household. You know, how, how much can you really know about what's happening in somebody's household based on what you see on Facebook? It just sounds like such a mess. What about cases that hadn't been resolved by the time the COVID pandemic started? But what's going on with those? Unless the, the attorneys and the parties are willing to participate in, in the private resources like mediation or referees, um, they're on pause. You know, they, they, they can't advance anything. They can't do anything uh, unless they can come to some agreement and only if they can find a venue to have those conversations. Uh, I tend to find if you negotiate, you know, people send letters with proposals and send over, you know, a, a compromised offer. It's so easy if it's not perfect to just say no, if you're reading it on a piece of paper. Um, that's why I think the mediations are good when you're actually in a place where you can ask follow-up questions and consider the pros and cons and have it explained to you in a way that you understand, people are far more likely to, to reach an agreement. As someone who has experienced a lawsuit personally, if you haven't, if the listener hasn't been in a lawsuit, consider yourself lucky because it, it was really, really, really stressful. Like perhaps one of the top three stresses of my life uh, being involved in a lawsuit and that wasn't to do with anything with something precious such as a child so knowing how stressful a lawsuit can be i think a delayed conclusion to a custody battle has got to be even more challenging i mean fear anxiety over overthinking you know agonizing because it's all out of the person's control and we like to have control. How can people let go of that, you know, wanting to be in control? Any tips on that? It's, it's hard. And it's, it's sort of like if you're, if you had an MRI and your doctor calls you and says, Hey, we found something on your brain scan. It could be something major. It could be nothing. We don't know. 
we'll let you know when we get the test results. And then you just wait and wait. So you have nothing, nothing to do other than think. And the, the mind can really take you, you can really go down the rabbit hole and, and things get really crazy. I, I think the result is, is that it's like dealing with any stress, finding something to, to occupy your mind, finding something else to think about, to focus on. Um, I get a lot of people that are in divorce cases that, um, you know, will really get into a particular hobby. Some people start running. There's a way to clear their mind. Uh, some people take up sports or activities. Some people take up a, a hobby, you know, just, just something to distract your mind and to, to occupy. And it's never going to go away completely, but it's, a fi- it's about finding those coping skills. Uh, but it, it's it's hard. It's a lot of sleepless nights. I can't even begin to imagine. I, I experienced many sleepless nights during my uh, legal endeavors over a purely not very important thing. And to have your kid away at your your enemy's house and imagining all the things that can go wrong uh, must lead to even more exasperation and feelings that you can't take care of your kid. That's got to be very, very, very scary for people. And in a period of time in this pandemic, which is scary enough already for a lot of people, just to go kind of back in time before the pandemic, how was the main court system faring then? Was there a backlog of cases? It really varied from court to court. I think the, the higher ups were really trying to find ways to streamline the system, uh, finding a way to make it more efficient because it's, it's inevitably inefficient. Um, a lot of that has to do with some attorneys making poor decisions to clog the courts with, with motions and pleadings that are not necessary. Some of it is unrepresented people who don't understand the court system, so they have to go back four times because they didn't know what they were going for, you know, the first three. Some of it is just inefficiencies in the system itself as far as available staff, uh, available court time, available judges. Uh, you know, we've had so many new judges and changes in judges and people moving from one courthouse to another, you know, that, that they've, they've struggled. I think they've done an all right job under the circumstances, and I think they're trying to make it better. But we have a system that runs the same, and realistically, the same last year as it did, you know, eight years ago. Any idea how long this mess will take to clean up in the courts. If the courts shut down for a month or two, does that mean that the the cleanup period would be comparable to that length of the shutdown? Or does the shutdown cause a more compounded problems that we're going to have to deal with? It's difficult to say because it depends on how long it lasts. Right now, the, the start back date is May 1st, but that's been in place you know, they've been saying that since March and every order that's been issued by the courts um, uh, related to COVID-19 keeps saying, look, we expect that that, that May 1st date is going to change. Nothing's been ordered yet, uh, but we, you know, we do expect that to happen. So I've been checking every day to see if it's being pushed out, uh, you know, whether or not they're going to start doing a rollout of doing telephonic hearings or telephonic conferences or if, if it remains the way that it is and the, the start back date is prolonged. I, I can't even imagine what that backlog is going to look like. Uh, it, it, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. People are going to be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for court dates. And that would be on both the civil and criminal sides? The biggest impact with the criminal side right now is, is jury trials are not being held. Jury trials, uh, criminal cases get priority for jury trials. 
uh, over civil cases. Now, family matter cases are a little different because the you know the, the superior court justices don't handle family matter cases. So it, I think there's the civil side being non-family civil cases uh, are certainly going to be very backed up, and they're not going to get to trial for quite some time. Criminal cases are going to get uh, priority for jury trials, uh, and judges are, are going to have to find a way to free themselves up to to do them. And on the family side, they're going to have to find a way to make up basically two months of missed hearings, because I can tell you that privately, it, it, it has not been as productive as I would have hoped it would have been, where I could work with uh, my colleagues to find resolution to cases. It's sort of for a lot of a lot of attorneys, apparently, the court system needs to be moving the ball, otherwise it doesn't move. Uh, but that's not everyone. Uh, I, I have a lot of colleagues that are, are looking at this from the same perspective as me. As we've we've got to we've got to find some resolution for these people. We got to find you know some progress during these two months because two months of downtime just uh, it's going to be much longer once the courts reopen. The two months is going to turn into six. What about the court employees? Are you familiar with what's going on with them? Are they still working? Have they been laid off? Or are they working from home? Are they still getting paid? I think some are laid off or furloughed, rather. Uh, others are able to work from home. Some that are essential, I think, are still coming in, but very few because they were, when this whole thing started, we were doing uh, telephonic conferences and family cases, status conferences and the uh, pretrial conferences. And I think because they uh, they didn't want to have to have clerks there to be able to keep records of all of those, um, they, they stopped doing them pretty quickly. Is there a, a future kind of technological revolution that we might uh, have to deal with in the legal profession? Like, would there ever be social distancing in the courtroom? Imagine, you know, the jury box, everybody's sitting very close together. Trials with juries where the juries are, are like in a separate room with like closed circuit TV, you know, or these things that would take, uh, you know, massive changes in rulemaking and things like that. Well, I'll tell you, for jury trials, I hope it never comes to that. Uh, I don't. I don't think it will. There's there's too much uh, information that can be communicated by being in the same room as someone. Uh, on the criminal side, they've been doing video arraignments in a lot of courthouses for a while um, uh, to avoid having to have people there. So I, I think we'll see some benefit there. In the in the family sector, um, it's sort of unfortunate because I I don't think there has been enough adapting. Uh, where we can get some growth out of this. I mean, you look at the school system, right? Uh, this stay home order and this, this homeschooling by remote access almost solves the, or could solve the snow day uh, issues <laughs> that a lot of schools have. Yeah. Where literally they can go, uh, there's no in school today because of snow, but there's still gonna be at home school uh, where they could literally just pull the trigger and make that happen. And they did that because the necessity arose, right? The family matter system, uh, the family court system uh, didn't really rise to that occasion. And, and maybe they couldn't. I mean, there's too many things that they're otherwise being focused on, but it would have been nice to see more come out of this um, pandemic as far as modernizing the way that we handle family matter cases. Uh, I mean, um, Zoom mediations, I guess, are becoming a little bit more popular, but, you know, it's unfortunate that the, we just couldn't do it with the court system. Zoom mediations Maybe the future, <laughs> I'm kind of worried about private industry being involved in that kind of broadcasting, though. Uh, would would there be issues with privacy and stuff? Well, the court, so court is open, but these, uh, you know, 
more private uh, legal conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, we don't know how secure any of these are. I mean, you're hearing about the Zoom bombing that's happening with uh, with larger events, private events. I mean, I don't know that anybody wants to listen to a family law mediation per se. There's, there's any hackers out there that are going, you know, I want to I want to hear about how dad doesn't wash his hands enough and how uh, you know mom's boyfriend drinks too much or the kid doesn't have enough nutrients in his lunch and dad gives the kid Gatorade. You know, it's these are the types of things that get talked about in mediation. But on the flip side, we also talk about some important financial issues. I mean, we discuss 401ks, we discuss uh, uh, where people do their banking and their, uh, their financial structures. I mean, there, there is a lot of, of personal very personal financial information that gets discussed in mediation. Uh, so if we're doing that openly on Zoom uh, or on some other device, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how private they are. And, you know, I had, a, I had a doctor's appointment for my kid this morning and there was no, there was no, it was done by Zoom and there wasn't even a password, you know, and it's, mm. it's, it's concerning. So in mediation, uh, is that supposed to be restricted to the, parties involved uh, if you were having mediation in real life it would just be the mother and father in the room uh, would they bring their new spouses or new partners with them into mediation in real life well we do when we do the mediations a lot of times the people are kept in separate rooms there's some time where they're all together but um, I often time I often find if they're in separate rooms the posturing is very different you know, nobody wants uh, to look weak. Nobody wants to say something that's going to suggest that they're willing to do more than they are. There's, there's a bit of that standoff. Um, and when I do, I, I mediate cases oftentimes as mediators, uh, as a mediator. And what I often find is I'm in these separate rooms and there's a lot of information that they don't want shared. But oftentimes they're, they're closer to an agreement than they realize. They're just too afraid to show their cards. Sounds like egos involved again as well. What about other aspects of the legal profession right now? Are, are more people writing wills than usual? We're seeing a ton of that. Uh, I have uh, a few people in my office that handle wills. I don't do them. I've been re- you know, referring them over to the people in my office that specialize. But definitely, I mean, it's, it's making people think, you know, and so we're, see- we're definitely seeing a shift there. The change in interest rates, the people that are kind of movers and shakers in uh, uh, commercial transactions and um, real estate are um, you know looking to to buy it and sell while the interest rates are are good and, and strong business people are are concerned they're you know talking to us about what they can do you know can they cut an employee's pay can they furlough people what type of benefits do they have to pay out what benefits can they pay out you know there's all these issues that people just didn't have to face and suddenly it's, it's right in front of them they have no choice but to address it so I certainly understand why lawyers were labeled as essential, even though uh, I've heard a, seen a lot of memes to the contrary. <laughs> but uh, people have a lot of questions. Are law firms busy enough, despite you know the lack of uh, court cases and things like that, or are law firms experiencing some financial hardships now too? Are, are law firms applying for federal aid? Absolutely. I would say that first week after the pandemic really hit, the phones were quiet, emails were quiet. Um, people had priorities far more than reaching out to their attorneys. So absolutely, you know, there's, there's stay home orders. So we, some firms, you know, have had to reduce their staff. Some firms have had to 
you know, people that can't work from home, um, you know, they've had to furlough. So certainly the, the legal industry is not immune from the economic impact of, of COVID-19. But as, as time has gone on, people are realizing that they have to do things, that they, they've got to make moves with their businesses. They've got to make moves personally. They've got to find a way to do something other than wait. We've been talking about things that have happened in the past, let's say the custody battles, things like that. But I know that a lot of people right now are worried about their future legal troubles that they never had an inkling they were going to be dealing with. And I'm talking about you know, bankruptcies and foreclosures because of the pandemic. Any advice for people trying to cope with these future legal troubles? It's sort of a, you have to be reactionary in part. Bankruptcy is a very real thing that, that people could be facing down the road. You know, we saw it after the, the crash in 2008, 2009. This is not that different from an economic perspective, the downturn in the economy. We, we don't know where it's going to go. So all people can do is try not to panic, uh, try to address the problems as they present themselves. Don't go to extremes. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, do I, do I keep everybody employed full time for as long as I can? Or do I reduce hours and reduce pay for everybody so I can keep more people working with some pay? Uh, and they're really individualized answers. I mean, there's no, there's no cookie cutter way of addressing this thing. Yeah, there's no real guidebook for business owners dealing with a pandemic, though after this pandemic, I'm sure there'll be lots of guidebooks on how to deal with that. <laughs> uh, so one final question. Uh, in my head, I keep on trying to frame the pandemic as you know, a dreadful, painful test of our emergency broadcast system, that there are other things out there that could cause havoc. Um, but it's also pointed out a lot of the frailties of our society and you know, capitalism. Uh, and I keep on thinking that we're ripe for revolution and dramatic change after this subsides because we've all been through something together. Uh, do you have any visions for the legal profession or the world in general for after the pandemic is over? You know, uh, early on, I thought it was starting to bring people together. You know, that the, we sort of were putting aside the pettiness and, you know, the, with all of the political climate and the, the upcoming election. And, you know, we're in probably one of the most polarized times in our country's history. And I thought, you know, we'll find some common ground. Um, and I think as people are sort of adapting to the initial shock that, that everybody had and the, the fear uh, where now they're starting to <laughs> they're, they're starting to lose perspective again. I don't know. I think it's, I think the, the polarization is just going to get worse and worse and worse again until it's back to what it was or, or even worse. Sort of a pessimistic view, I guess. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the good people will come together. I'm hoping that there's still middle ground to be found. I'm hoping that there's still uh, overlap in the Venn diagram of, of uh, uh, political and, and uh, societal views. But I don't know. I just don't know. Odyssey charities, you know, uh, people who have money, giving money to people in need, it, that's it's nice to see. But I just don't know if it's going to change everything. We, we started from a bad place. It was a bad time to get COVID-19. <laughs> As if there's ever a good time. I, I hear you on the fact that uh, people are starting to lose perspective. I think in Maine, we're lucky to a certain degree. 
because you know we're not having bodies pile up uh, we're just having you know these kind of ancillary issues piling up you're a dad of some very cute kids how do you deal with talking about it with the kids well a couple of your kids at least you can talk about it with you know i don't think there's any right answers i think it's you know, trying not to scare kids. Um, kid, kids First actually put out this great video. Uh, it's like a half hour video on their YouTube channel. I, I suggest any parent check it out because okay. it, it talks about the co-parenting piece. It talks about the, uh, you know, withholding of contact piece, but it, it talks about how to sort of answer those questions for your kids. So they're getting the same message in both households. Um, okay. Because that's, that's a big problem. I mean, in, in general, kids getting two different answers in two different households to the same questions is always a problem, right? You know, it, it happens in divorce cases of why aren't you and mom together anymore? You know, why don't, why don't you love dad anymore? Or mom said this, or dad said that. Uh, and they're not getting consistent information. So Kids First has really done a good job, I think, in, in the, their video of explaining of, you know, how not to lie, but not to scare, you know, and, and uh, to, to be able to have a consistent message in both households and have that communication about, well, what are we going to tell the kids? You got to prepare them for the real world, you know, about this is why we're not going out. This is why Johnny can't come over right now. This is why you're not going to school. Um, this is why we can't go visit grandma. You know, they need, they need to get those consistent answers. I'll watch that video and I'll put a link to that video in the uh, show notes for today's podcast so that listeners can watch that as well. Because, you know, again, I can't begin to imagine how confusing it must be for the little ones in our society. If uh, mom and dad are freaking out, that's going to be trickling down. Well, Jason, thank you very much for your insight today and uh, for the work you're doing on behalf of Mainers and Family Law. So one last uh, little advice for you, buddy. Be sure to wash your hands. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sitting with a, a bottle of Purell by my side right now. Thanks a lot, man, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Pleasure as always, Crash. ¿Sabes que hay una manera correcta de estornudar? Vamos a mostrarles, Elmo. Ah, sí. Pica tu nariz y sientes una chupa. Ahora vas a ver. Eso es esto. Hasta tu brazo y tu cara. Para obtener más información sobre cómo prevenir la gripe, visite flu.gov. Thanks to Jason for telling us about what's happening in the main courts these days. Uh, he mentioned a video by a group called Kids First. You can find out more about them via kidsfirstcenter.org. That's kidsfirstcenter, one word, kidsfirstcenter.org. Uh, they're a Scarborough group, and their mission is, quote, to minimize the emotional and sometimes physical trauma children experience during the separation and divorce of their parents. Sounds like a very good organization. I'm going to watch their video about explaining COVID-19 to children, and I suggest you do the same. So that's kidsfirstcenter.org. 
Joining us now is Andy O'Brien from the Maine AFL-CIO and a fellow contributor to Mainer to discuss a new unemployment helpline for Mainers that are out of work. Currently, over 100,000 Mainers have filed for unemployment benefits in the last five weeks. Over 11,000 new filings in the last week. Andy, what is the union doing to help? Well, uh, we have set up a helpline. There's an online portal that folks can go to if they're having trouble filing for unemployment. Filing for unemployment, um, it can be very um, frustrating because there's millions of ways you can make mistakes on these forms, depending on how you answer the questions. Some people are uh, ending up in what we call fact-finding hell, uh, which means they answer something uh, wrong on the form and they end up um, delaying their unemployment for for up to months. I mean, we have people that have interviews scheduled in, in, in late June now, and they're still not getting um, help. So we can answer your questions if you go to uh, www.mainaflcio.org slash UI. That's mainaflcio.org slash UI. And um, you fill out a form with your uh, information, your questions, and one of our uh, unemployment volunteers will be in touch with you to answer your question. We're helping uh, both uh, union members and non-union members alike. Um, we also have a Facebook group, um, which is actually probably the better option because a lot of these questions are being asked already, the questions that you might have. If you go to www.facebook.com groups slash main unemployment, uh, the group is called Maine Unemployment Assistance. If you just enter that into a search, you should find it. Um, or if you go to our Maine AFL-CIO Facebook page, you could find it there as well. This is a project with a number of different groups, um, uh, unions and, and nonprofits and um, social service nonprofits who are trying to help folks who are um, having trouble filing. So. Um, go to our Facebook page or go to our website, and we can answer any questions that you have. All right. Thank you very much, Andy O'Brien from the Maine AFL-CIO, and we'll put those links up on the show notes as well. We want to hear your pandemic stories. How are you doing? Are you freaking out and need help? Or are you chilling out, wondering what the heck is going on out there? Are you an essential worker and want to tell your story? Or do you know of a hero or a helper or a, a henchman for evil? Please drop me a line at crash at crashberry.com. Next week on Open Ears, Maine, Tuesday and Thursday nights from 7 until 8, We'll continue the conversation about how COVID-19 is impacting life here in Maine. We'll speak to a barber, a restaurant owner, a schooner captain, and others. Until then, wash your hands. And please cover your mouth when coughing. And then wash your hands again. <laughs>